Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In a spacious, light-filled kitchen in Atlanta, Taria Camerino is preparing a pair of dishes perfect for a Thanksgiving table. You know what's great is I've never made this flavor before. But what Taria is making isn't traditional Thanksgiving fare. They're dishes that she has developed herself by blending textures and flavors from multiple cultures and traditions. We're going to make a cranberry marmalade, and I'm going to use black lime, which is uh, Middle Eastern. They dehydrate the limes. Uh, and it makes them really sharp flavored. And then I'll have mandarin and sumac and pomegranate molasses. I'm also going to do roasted sweet potato with sorghum drage, so candied sorghum grain and uh, pomegranates. Um, and I don't remember what else was supposed to be on it. We're just going to kind of wing it. Taria is a professional chef. So she's no stranger to improvising in the kitchen, whether she's deciding which ingredients to add to a dish or just how much water to pour into a scalding pan. The water, as far as measuring goes, um, you want just enough to cover the top. But when Taria creates dishes, she's very intentional. As she moves around the kitchen, She's using all of her senses to decide what her next move should be. She carefully sniffs each of her ingredients one by one. And she listens, for example, to the cranberries bubbling on the stove in a pot to see when they'll be ready. And so those are going to cook down, and then the cranberries will start to... She watches closely as their color brightens as they cook. It's this beautiful magenta color, right? Because the they've started to bust and they're breaking down. And then there's this nice, actually, you know what it looks like when we have this those really awesome sunsets in Atlanta? They're like orange and red and pink. Yeah, it's that color. It's one of the most beautiful sunset colors. <sighs> it's just amazing. It can make you cry. It's not unusual for chefs to cook with all their senses, but there hasn't been a dedicated field of science exploring why these factors play such a big role in the way we eat. Until now. So in the simplest terms, neurogastronomy is the science of how the brain perceives flavor relevant to what we eat, why we like what we eat, and how we eat. That's Dan Hahn. And unlike Taria... He's not a chef. He's a scientist. In fact, he's one of the founding fathers of this new interdisciplinary field called neurogastronomy. 
It brings chefs and farmers and doctors and researchers together to the table, so to speak, with one common goal, to explore how the brain perceives flavor and how our other senses, our surroundings, even our memories, affect the way we experience food. And we have to listen with all of our senses, right? It's not just taste. You know, the way it makes us feel when we're in front of it. How does it smell? Do we feel excited? You know, what is happening? If we're paying attention to all of those senses, the body is naturally drawn to things that make it feel well. And here's the really exciting part. Professor Hahn and Taria believe it is possible to use this new field of science for real good. Imagine if you craved whole fruits and vegetables in the same way you might crave a chocolate bar or chips, all because of how your brain perceives the food. On today's episode, we're going to explore how neurogastronomy can help us retrain our brains to crave healthier and more sustainable foods. Professor Han will guide us through some of the brain science, and with Taria's help, we'll give you some actionable tips that you might even be able to use at your own Thanksgiving table. But I want to be clear, this isn't about counting calories or restricting what you eat. Neurogastronomists aren't dietitians. they're not nutritionists, they're not necessarily telling you what to eat. They're telling you how to experience what you eat. So I hope you're hungry, because today we're heading into the kitchen. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and it's time to start chasing life. For a while now, cooking, preparing, eating a meal has been viewed as more of an art than a science. Understandably, but increasingly, researchers are exploring the ways in which we taste and perceive flavor. And as I mentioned, the field of neurogastronomy, which brings together scientists and those in the culinary industry, is still fairly new. Dr. Gordon Shepard, a legend in the field of neuroscience, uh, who recently passed, unfortunately, coined the term in 2006 in his publication in the journal Nature. He called for scientists to come out of their academic ivory tower silos. He called for that to end and then to create an interdisciplinary approach to address food perception. When Professor Han learned about Dr. Shepard's goal, he decided to take action. Han's day job is working as chief of the neuropsychology division at UK Healthcare in Kentucky and a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine. But with the help of chefs and other scientists, he also co-founded the International Society of Neurogastronomy, an organization that has many goals and spans across disciplines. Neurogastronomy fundamentally asks scientists, clinicians like us, futurists, chefs, and consumers of anything delicious to teach each other to learn more about all aspects of flavor perception for humans. Um, and you can see how such a challenge can address issues spanning from making food more delicious to efficient and effective nutrition intake for global health and agricultural sciences. What we're trying to aim for is to actually be true to ourselves and identify how flavor mechanism works and then change how we can create a balance instead of overconsumption or you know over farming or what have you but come up with scientific and evidence-based ways so that we could perceive food the way we want to and have our kick you needed to. You know, it was that last part of what Dr. Hans said that I found really important. 
Because before we change our behaviors, we do have to first understand how taste and flavor actually work. So I asked him to give us a crash course on how we perceive flavor. I want to dial in and and talk about the mechanics, I guess, of what you're talking about, just so we can set the table in in terms of what these interventions or what these things are. And start off by this, you know, just explain the mechanics behind taste. We think of the tongue. We know the brain plays obviously a major role in this, Mm -hmm. um, what we ultimately perceive. Mm -hmm. What is the mechanism behind taste? So I'm glad you brought that up because that actually um, dives into what we're trying to achieve collectively. So let's uh, digest this. And that was an unintended (laughs) pun again. What we semantically consider taste is actually more aptly termed flavor. So you see flavor perception is actually 75 to 90% comprised of smell, not taste. So what you colloquially think of taste is actually flavor uh, to a much lesser extent through the actual taste receptor cells on the tongue itself. Let's just repeat that for one sec, because I I think that is a fascinating concept. So taste is one component of flavor. Correct. Flavor involves many things, but the biggest thing is actually smell. Mm -hmm. So taste is one component of flavor, but not at all the largest component of flavor. Yes, and where it gets extra tricky in terms of the mechanism is that it's not as much inhalation of the smell, but it's the retronasal olfaction, which is just a fancy way of saying exhale. That exhalation is tingling your senses. I mean, if the audience doesn't believe me, try this next time you're at a favorite restaurant or having a favorite meal. Try chewing everything with your nose plugged and don't breathe through your nose while you're chewing. And then you'll notice everything just get dense. And then, you know, before you choke, I mean, don't choke, (laughs) you know, um, exhale out. And then you'll notice a drastic difference in how the flavor profile changes in your mouth. And that is that 75% of flavor perception. Look, I think that most people listening, myself included, knew that smell was a part of flavor, but I don't think I realized it was such a huge factor. And it's not just smell. All senses, sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch are involved in flavor perception, and they activate the brain circuits involving the dopamine reward system. Over time, we actually evolved to crave certain foods in order to survive. Health-wise, it makes sense that you know, beyond subjective memories, our species are drawn to flavors associated with high-calorie density foods, such as sugar and fat. You know, we live in a unique recorded human history time point where we're actually not only having high-calorie density foods, but we're actually having problems because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, again, it's the principle of too little of anything is no good, too much of anything is no good. Uh, it's all about the balance, and the balance can tilt if we're not careful. So if you look at this from an evolutionary perspective, we evolved to enjoy certain foods, foods that would be important to our survival. But at a time when that was the case, it was a very different world. We didn't have ultra-processed foods. We didn't have mass manufacturing of foods. We didn't have so many calories so easily available. 
So therein lies the paradox. On one hand, we got what we always probably wanted as human beings was to have unlimited, you know, bountiful food. But on the other hand, we've now seen the perils of that. And that's the inflection point where you're trying to intervene. Yes. Baked into our DNA is the desire to seek comfort. And try to fight that is also just as irresponsible, in my humble opinion. So don't deny the fact that we want sugary and oily things, I mean, that are delicious from our flavor perception perspective, but at the same time, don't create those situations to be so overboard that it's actually hurting us. It's fascinating to sort of realize that whether we enjoy a certain food or we hate it probably has more to do with our other senses, our memories, our histories, than what's really at the end of our fork. In fact, the way we experience food is about more than just the ingredients we use or following a recipe. Contrary to what we've been taught, it actually has a lot more to do with the brain than our tongue. But once you realize this, you can start to make changes. Professor Han says we can balance our natural desire for high-calorie foods with some healthier swaps that will satisfy our brains in the same way. And you don't have to be a scientist, a doctor, or even a professional chef to give it a try. Try blue plates if you want people to eat more. Try red plates if you want people to eat less. After the break, Professor Han and Chef Taria share more tricks of the trade you can try in your own kitchen. We got that coming up in a moment. And now back to Chasing Life and more of my conversation with Professor Dan Hahn. You know, after talking to Han about the mechanisms of taste and the factors that affect how we perceive food, I did want to learn more about how we can put all of this into action. What would this be like then? Let's say I'm going out to dinner. Um, I want to eat a healthy dinner. Mm-hmm. Would, I, would I do something to my, something that binds to my sweet perceptors ahead of time? Or what would that look like? Okay, um, you could actually borrow from color association theories and how they enhance certain sensory perceptions and so on. For an example, how it was used in the United Kingdom, um, National Health Service uh, in 2013 or so, they identified hospital malnutrition as a major problem and um, switched hospital foods from serving them on a white plate to blue plates. That was it. And that was predicated on experimental psychology literature on color association for food delivery. And average food consumption for vulnerable patients on that floor went up from 114 grams to um, 152 grams. That's a 33% increase. You know, that's a brilliant, simple hack that improved control nutrition delivery for vulnerable patients. Look, that's kind of remarkable. Something as simple as changing the color of the plates ultimately really shifted how these patients perceived their food, and in this case, even helped them recover. As a doctor, that's really exciting. Now, Professor Han says there is still more research to be done, but neurogastronomists also hope to use similar principles to help people with smell and taste challenges as well. Think of people undergoing chemotherapy, older folks, or even those with sinus issues. What if you could experience taste in a new way? Or you could reinvigorate something you've lost by incorporating more color, texture, sound, or smell into the dishes so that your brain essentially processes these flavors in a different way. It's a lot to think about, but it's amazing. You could add extra crunch to a meal, 
that will accentuate the salty flavors. You could add extra color to help your brain register that something is sweet or sour. And these ideas aren't just for people with medical issues. Now we could do that for our dinner table, too. you got a picky eater. Simply um, uh, see if you could uh, get them to eat more. You know, I have a special needs child who's a very, very, very picky eater. He's nonverbal. Um, and then, you know, we give them something on a blue plate. And, uh, you know, hope for the best. <laughs> it doesn't do the trick 100% of the time, but it does yield those incremental differences. And you could do the exact opposite. You want people to eat less, uh, give them food on a red plate. And uh, these are some of these uh, immediate delivery hacks, so to say. By the way, you were the topic of discussion at my family dinner last night. Um, I have three teenage Uh-oh. girls. <laughs> no, I, I, I had just been reading, you know, and, and doing some prep work. And it's fascinating when you start reading about your field. and and But just little things like you just said, like... Dessert served on a white plate versus a black plate. It's so interesting how our brains are constantly making these inferences about things based on how the food is presented. Right. And you as a neurosurgeon, you know, you know how all these micro and macro circuits work with reference points and the interplay, almost an orchestra of all these senses coming together for a very, very specific and personalized um, and subjective memories and what that means for you. The example that I like to use is like eating popcorn. To you, it may represent going to the movies with your kids and glazing butter over the salty and umami flavored popcorn and then having a great time together, looking at the big screen and it may bring and spark joy and all that's associated with that kernel as you anticipate eating that the next time. For me, it may mm-hmm. uh, present um, coughing, dry mouth, um, choking on the kernel uh, <laughs> when I ate it while I was coughing, you know, et cetera. So it's highly personalized, <laughs> right? So there's not going to be um, a universal principle here. We have to be very respectful uh, of um, individualized perception and experience. I am curious, when you put all of this together, how do you live your life differently? You sort of said this earlier, but you have a a son who's a picky eater. And then when you do hacks like this, you know, you're not saying it's always going to work. But if I were to say, (laughs) you know, you could have carte blanche in terms of hacking the food and setting up the ambiance, the cutlery, the plates, the smell, all of that, like how much of an influence can neurogastronomists have on the way that we eat? I'll actually flip that question and ask you, uh, what do you think uh, industry, restaurants, uh, food delivery industry, um, and uh, food manufacturers, chip manufacturers, potato chips, what do you think they've been doing the last hundred years? That's exactly that. But, you it know? Seemed, but, but it does seem like they've been appealing to our core desires, right? The, the desire as humans for salt and for fat mm-hmm. and for sweet. So they've been appealing to something that is well known. But what I'm asking you is like, now you're trying to actually in some ways interfere with that process. Um, with all the caveats you mentioned, but still interfere with that process. That seems like a much higher bar than just appealing to our most primal instincts. I would argue that it's not countering that process, rather giving into that process, but 
with the caveat that uh, we're delivering it in the most balanced way possible. Uh, meaning, um, instead of just overloading things with salt because we want salt and just overloading things with sugar because we want sugar, keep the predicate that we want sugar and we want salt, but deliver it with less salt and less sugar, but have the brain to perceive it as a lot of sugar and a lot right. of salt. That's the goal. That's the trick. But how effective can you be though? That's my question. Yeah, we're in our infancy. So the actual effect size of these quote unquote hacks, that's not as established to have high yield to change the planet's culture yet. I realize we're in the infancy, as you say, but in a full manifestation of what this might look like, how would my life or any individual's life change if neurogastronomy was a much bigger part of our lives? Would the foods that we eat be different or would we be taking something that's a supplement to make the foods different? Oh, foods would look different. So we have evolved to want certain things. And then that's going to create demand. And then industry is going to provide supply for that demand. And then it individually uh, comes back to us and modifies our behavior. We want more of what we wanted initially. This is what I conceptualize as a flavor economics. So what can we do at the personal and individual level? Don't deny yourself, but... At the same time, come up with neurogastronomic evidence-based tricks so that you could actually enjoy the sugary and enjoy the salty and umami goodness. And if we could do that at the individual level, then the demand changes to that sustainable ingredient and industry will just follow. And I have no problem letting professionals who know best how to run industry do exactly that but not the way they want to feed us but the way we want to eat like i said this field is about more than counting calories or restricting your diet this is about better understanding why our brains crave certain foods whether it's something salty or sweet or creamy and if we are able to better understand the brain science behind those cravings does it mean we may also be able to steer our brains toward foods that are not just good for us, but maybe even good for the planet? That's something big picture that really excites Professor Hahn and others in the field. Think of a world where you craved a fruit or vegetable that is sustainably sourced, the same way you might crave chips, just because you hear the same satisfying crunch. That's the future many neurogastronomists would like to create. In the meantime, though, you can make small changes and you don't have to sacrifice flavor to do it. Little things, as you heard, from plate color to just preparing meals at home, really taking in all the smells and the aromas, all of that can really help affect our experience with food. And here's a few other hacks from Professor Hahn to get you started. Tip number one, don't deprive yourself of your favorite flavors, but do try to seek out healthier or more sustainable swaps when you can. The first step is reusing at home what restaurant industry and food delivery industry has been using to enhance their delivery. 
for the last hundred plus years or so, which is, you know, trying different plates, lighting, hues, all these different established science in psychology so that we could do the same thing with more sustainable ingredients. Tip number two, make eating healthful foods and vegetables part of your traditions, like Thanksgiving. That way your brain starts getting positive memories to associate with those foods. So the trick is to come up with ways to associate pleasant and joyous occasions with things that are healthy that you don't necessarily like to eat, right? And vice versa. You know, these are little tricks of the trade to reorganize your habits. Tip number three comes to us from Taria, the chef we heard from at the beginning of the episode. Touch your ingredients. Like, touch them. Get to know them. And, yeah, you'll look like a weirdo. You know, you're, like, feeling your rice in the bowl. Smell it. Really just get to know all of your ingredients with all of your senses before you even start cooking. And if you're starting out or if it's intimidating, go simple. Don't have 30 ingredients four or five that you love. Start there. I got to tell you, I've been really excited to incorporate some of these tips into my own dinner table. I think we're going to get some new colorful plates by Thanksgiving. I've already talked to my wife about this. We're trying to decide if we're going to tell the kids and see if they notice, if they'll actually eat less on a red plate or more on a blue plate. It's just fascinating to think about this idea of being more prescriptive in what we serve, but also how we serve it. My biggest takeaway, I think, from the conversation is that even the tiniest change can affect the way you experience your food. So don't be afraid to start small. Your brain and body are probably going to thank you for this. And speaking of Thanksgiving, I recently asked all of you to call in and tell me about your favorite Thanksgiving dishes, how they make you feel. We got some great responses that really did make me hungry. I haven't met a person who doesn't love my aunt's cranberry sauce. It's a simple recipe, but it's infused in Bangladeshi spices that burst in your mouth and bring you back home. Growing up Salvadoran-American, we always ate a typical Salvadoran dish called panes con chompipe, which is essentially like a turkey sandwich with a nutty sauce on top. My green bean casserole. What I love most about it is the fact that my family begs me to make it, and that just makes my heart so happy. Thank you so much, as always, for calling in. I love hearing those messages, and I think these messages really do prove Professor Han's point that some of our favorite foods are tied to our fondest memories. And to all of you who celebrate... I wish you a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'm certainly thankful for all of you, the listeners, for supporting this podcast. And with Thanksgiving coming up, I also wanted to let you know that we are taking a short break as well. We're not going to have a new episode in your feeds next week, but we'll be back soon with one of my favorite episodes about how to get a good night's sleep. After studying sleep for more than 20 years, I'm convinced that sleep is one of the most important things for our survival. That's coming up in just two weeks. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Our podcast is produced by Emily Liu, Grace Walker, Xavier Lopez, Aaron Mathewson, 
and Andrea Kane. Our intern is Amber Alasawi. Haley Thomas is our senior producer, and Abby Fentress Swanson is our executive producer. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker, Amanda Seeley, and Nadia Kunang of CNN Health. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.